Hello and welcome to Disrupt TV. We are on episode number 122. This is Ray Wong. I'm one of the co-founders of Disrupt TV and your co-host. And I'm here with my amazing co-host today, guest co-host Doug Henschens, our vice president of our vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research, looking at data to decisions. Doug is one of your foremost resources in terms of understanding where analytics is taking you to next best action and contextual decisions. Doug, I'll throw it on to you. Hey, and I'm with my amazing uh, co-host, Ray Wang, uh, founder of Constellation Research and uh, itinerant traveler off to new places each and every day. So where, where is it next, Ray? Well, hey, thank you. I'm actually live here in Pebble Beach, uh, broadcasting from the uh, Capgemini Spark event, uh, kind of having some fun. But we are on episode 122, amazing guests. Um, let's start with our guest, Dave. Doug, I'll let you do the intros. Yes, uh, David Moss is CTO and co-founder of robotic process automation vendor Blue Prism. He's the chief software architect of their software. And previously, he spent five years working for Lynx Financial Systems as a senior software designer. And he provided uh, packaged and bespoke software to financial services giants, including Barclays Bank, Nationwide Building Society, Transamerica Commercial Finance. You can follow his company on Twitter at Blue underscore Prism. David, you have your own Twitter handle. And uh, for those who don't know what robotic process automation is, tell us about its benefits. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let's, let's dive straight into uh, RPA, shall we, uh, Doug? I mean, um, you know, the, 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 the whole essence of, of what we're trying to do here is, is to democratize technology. You know, there are people all over our world-class organizations who've got some fabulous ideas about how they can increase productivity, how they could serve their customers better, how they could launch products faster. Um, and it's about giving those people uh, the teeth, the technology, the opportunity um, to be able to, to take those ideas and bring them to life, you know, to, to, to use what we call a digital workforce to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, augmenting their existing uh, staff, their existing workforce, and just generating a whole new wave of capacity. It's a, it's a whole new way of working. It's, a, it's an alternative approach to work. You know, it's, it's like a third uh, sourcing option, if you like. You know, you look at your your onshore staff, your, your in-source staff, you could look at contracting stuff out if you need some temporary staff to help create new capacity. Uh, we've introduced this idea of a digital workforce, you know, a, a server-based, scalable, resilient, um, uh, high-speed uh, workforce that can do some of those jobs, you know, and, and, and help to, uh, to, to give you extra capacity, extra productivity, and, uh, and, and better service for your clients. And you're talking about the new digital labor, right? I mean, these are bots, these are algos, but they're augmenting humanity as along with the training that's actually happening. Um, what got you to create um, Blue Prism? What was the founding thing that, that made, hey, we really need to go out and do this and create this new category called, you didn't call it RPA right away, but that's how do we go create this new category right. of RPA? Yeah, and, and you know, as you said in your intro, uh, Doug, you know, my background was enterprise software. We were there you know, looking at these tomes of requirements that we got given from our clients um, and then working through, a, in those days, it was waterfall, you know, working through several years of requirements analysis, design, development, delivery, to, to give our clients what they wanted. Uh, the problem was, you know, we were giving them what they wanted three years ago, uh, not what they wanted today. Uh, and if you want to change any of that, you've got to wait, you know, it's like turning an oil tanker. So we kind of put our heads together and said, look, there's so much frustration out there. There are so many great ideas in terms of what people want to do business and the world and technology is changing so frequently and so quickly that, you know, organizations just can't keep up. You know, it takes too long to get through, uh, uh, you know, the various processes and channels. So 
why don't we, you know, if you talk about teacher guy to fish, you know, why don't we give the business guys a capability that is underwritten by IT, you know, it's running in the data center, it's supported by IT, we'll put in place a framework that allows them to do this safely, you know, we don't want to create uh, uh, disasters all over the place, let's give them a framework, a piece of scalable software, and let them solve their own problems, you know. Um, I was chatting to, to one of um, the, the, the early customers that we set up with, and he was saying, look, you know, we have 200 change requests every year in terms of the kind of things we want to do to make our business better. Um, but technology, you know, they just don't have the resources to deliver them all. They can only do 10, all right? So there's 190 ideas that just fall by the wayside just because the capacity isn't there. So, you know, it's about addressing that frustration, giving them a technology that they could use to solve their problems, but doing it in a really structured, safe and, and sort of scalable way. So back in the day as a journalist, I covered things like, you know, business process management and rules engines and capture and OCR and, you know, early, earlier permutations of AI. But what, what are the technologies you're talking about? You know, what, what goes into RPA? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, if you think about RPA, if you were going to give an operational team the capability to solve some of their own problems, to, to do some integration of their own, you know, you might think about, well, you know, how can I do that in such a way that I don't break any of the data integrity that's there in place? I don't circumvent any security that's put in place. Um, and so the way that we set about doing it was to say, well, why don't we call this a robot? Why don't we call it a digital worker and allow it, you know, to, to use the systems and use the applications and use the processes that the business are already using. They're already doing this stuff, okay? So you've built these systems, you've rolled them out to 20,000, 30,000 users, and they're scalable, they're audited, they're compliant, they're secure. Why don't we train digital workers to use those same systems? And they can interact with BPM applications, with OCR systems, with, uh, with all the various different uh, uh, web services and APIs that you've got in your business right now. But if you want to do something that's not currently supported, you know, you've got a process for it, but you haven't got an integration for it, we'll train a robot to use the systems that you give to your users, to your people right now, uh, and do it using that approach. Now, you guys are big, right? You guys are big in financial services. We see you there a lot. Um, these are places where, you know, you've been helping uh, organizations with like the toughest, gnarliest problems. These are big DevOps shops um, and you're helping them be a lot more agile. But let's take it outside of financial services. What else is hot for you guys? Uh, where you're seeing adoption? Does it have to have kind of that environment of heavy DevOps or can it be in a different type of environment? Does it have an environment where people are used to, you know, building on demand or, you know, what kind of environments and frameworks actually work well? And then how does that translate to industries? Yeah, look, I think, you know, we started in financial services. That was, you know, where we cut our teeth. That was the industry we worked in before. So that's kind of where we started engineering and architecting the product to aim it at that audience. Um, and I think we were very lucky, actually, because the bar is really high in that industry. If you think about compliance, you think about governance, you think about scale and security, you know, financial services organizations have got a lot to look after in terms of their data and their customers. So we had to engineer a really solid, scalable product. But then we started finding that actually, you know, we're talking the language of process, not the language of finance. And so you imagine a digital worker that can operate in financial services. You can move that into any industry where you've got processes that people uh, are doing and that systems support. Um, and so we find ourselves moving into pharmaceuticals. You know, Pfizer are a customer of Blue Prism. Uh, you move into uh, soft drinks, you know, Coca-Cola are a big customer. Uh, Heineken, you know, as we're on a Friday, uh, let's talk about Heineken, you know, they're a, they're a customer of ours. Even organizations like uh, Schneider, 
you know, you'd think, you know, what does a trucking company want with a digital workforce? Uh, but actually, you know, the business there are having some fabulous ideas about how they can use digital workers to prioritize alerts and tell their drivers when their truck's about to, to break down, you know? Um, and so what they've been able to do is to reduce the number of, of engine failures from, you know, hundreds the year before they put Blue Prism in to now zero, you know? So it's, it's about thinking about if we had unlimited capacity, if we didn't have to worry about what our people were doing and prioritize what they were doing and have backlogs and queues, if we had unlimited capacity, what could we do with that? Uh, and you get some really interesting ideas that are applicable to, to any industry, not just financial services. So when does it stop being uh, human augmentation and start being human replacement? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's really interesting about um, some of the perception of RPA and also some of the approach that some of the vendors are taking. So, you know, I, I, I don't like to see customers and I don't see customers with Blue Prism actually that are looking at our software as a, an FTE replacement technology. And this is part of the switch from the, you know, software robot is a great notion, you know, but it's repetitive, it's rote, it's executing rules-based tasks. I'd rather think of Blue Prism as RPA as a, a digital workforce, you know, and, and, and if I imagine myself, you know, and what I do in my job, there are a ton of tasks and a ton of bits of, of information and insight and analysis that I'd love to be able to do if I had the time, you know, if I had the resources to help me to do that. And so, you know, when our customers start adopting RPA, they start to see it as augmenting their staff, as surrounding their staff with an army of workers that can give them insight into customers they couldn't get before, that can collectively look at data and bring that data together to give them insight into the next best step, um, but also that can, that can increase throughput in terms of the number of customers that you can work, you know, the, the, the number of people you can speak to, uh, the number of products that you can push out. Uh, and the number of customer service tickets you can work through. So for me, it's about creating a virtual army of digital workers that just surround every employee and give them the confidence, the insight and the information to do their job the best way they can. Wow, so this takes us back to the point. We're now freeing up workers to do higher level tasks, anything that is automated, which we typically have a framework, right? We look at things that are massively repetitive. We look at things that are high nodes of interaction. We look at things that have massive volume. And we also look at the scale for time to completion as places where we actually look at automation. You're telling about this as a way to help folks free up um, their ability to actually then focus on next best action or focus on decisions or focus on higher level areas. Right. And I, I've seen some, you know, I've seen some crazy processes out there, right? You, you know, I saw one in a financial services institution where there was a person that came in every morning and they bought a newspaper on the way into work. And their first two hours were spent copying all of the exchange rates for all of the global currencies into their system. So it could use that for that day's transactions, right? That's nuts. No one would enjoy doing that work. You know, I would hate that. Plus, I would know that if I made a single mistake, if I got a decimal point in the wrong place at any time, the mess that I could create would be, you know, enormous. So the risk that I'm carrying as an individual doing that job is something I'm not comfortable with. So, you know, having a digital worker to do that for me just allows me to, to think about what matters to my organization. You know, I want to work with customers. I want to speak to people. I want to solve problems. That's, that's my skill. That's my ability, uh, not working through, you know, copying and pasting stuff out of a newspaper. When we talk to companies that are embracing this technology, that's a, they often report that, employees are relieved after the fact, but how do you reassure them as you go into these projects that it's not about replacing them? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, it's about cultural adoption, you know, um, everyone's got backlogs, you know, another company that we worked with, you know, I, I was going into their building for a meeting, we went through one of the, the rear entrances to one of the blocks and there were just, um, uh, you know, big uh, dustbins, you know, garbage uh, uh, containers underneath the stairs, and they were full of letters, okay, and I said to the guys, what, what's in those garbage containers, and they said, their change of address letters, you know, where customers are writing to us and asking us to change their address. And we've got so many, we've got thousands of these things and we don't have the staff to do it, right? So they're just sitting there um, and we're probably never gonna get round to it. So you look at all the backlogs that are there building up, the amount of debt that you're building up in terms of the things you can't do. And look, to be competitive, you know, to be at the top of your game, to be the best company and offer the best service and win the most customers and sell the best products, You've got to be the most agile you know and, and that doesn't just mean agile from a technology perspective it means operationally agile so getting everyone to embrace this idea that let's put a digital workforce in place let's become the most agile company we can be and let's crowdsource ideas you know shop direct who are a uk um, 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 uh, uh, company that, that that sell retail goods i've got this this uh, workforce idea called all ideas matter right where they pool ideas from anyone in the company to say, you know, what could we use our digital workers to do to make our organization better, faster, more competitive, uh, and make our customers, you know, come to us uh, uh, next time, you know, and that's, that's the mindset, that's the thought process, not, you know, how many people can we do away with, because that doesn't make you a better company, it just makes you smaller. Well, you know what, that's actually interesting. So as we go through this stage of automation, right, as people are getting to that automation, it goes hand in hand with actually hap what happens in the world of AI, right? And so we're seeing that AI piece actually play a role. So what's the difference between RPA and AI and how do they all come together? Okay, and, and, and I think that's, it's a really interesting question because you know, you've seen the, the kind of the, the hype and the interest and the activity that's, that's there around AI at the moment. And I think, you know, I look at RPA as being um, a, a way for businesses to get more agile, you know? Uh, and AI for me is about delivering value to business. You know, it's, it's how can we, how can we use new technologies to not just follow some rules, but to give us insight, uh, to, to, to help us to perceive things, you know, to help us to, to, to understand the world around us. And so I think if you could couple those together, um, uh, you know, if you could look at AI as being part of the vehicle to get to this digital workforce, I think you're then talking about a solution where you've given the business a platform that allows them to express themselves and to solve their own problems. And then you start to give them building blocks that say, look, here are some, some, some specialized AI technologies that, that are becoming commoditized. You know, natural language processing is a good example of that. Uh, visual perception, you know, image recognition. They're becoming commoditized. They're becoming well-versed and well-practiced. Let's plug those into our platform and allow business people to use uh, some of that commoditized AI in terms of, uh, of the processes that they're writing and the problems they're trying to solve. And the job, I think, the role of Blue Prism is to say, let's show these business guys, these operational leaders, what's possible. Let's show them the art of the possible. Let's show them what Google are doing, what Microsoft are doing, what Amazon are doing, what IBM are doing. Let's expose that in such a way that it's in the context of business. And let's wrap it up so that you don't need to understand Python or Perl uh, or C++. You know, you can just drag and drop it into a business process and harness that and use it and see what results you get. So for me, you know, AI is a journey. It's a journey to give the business some of the outcomes and some of the results they're trying to get, but it's also a way of improving the skills of our digital workers, elevating those digital workers and making them more intrinsic 
as part of the organization by giving them the skills to, to, to help more, to give more insight, to, to do more work. So if you, if you have something that's learning though, like an AI agent or a bot, you know, or a digital twin or something that has a learning uh, component, how do you ensure that you have uh, accountability, transparency in, in, that, uh, in that system? Yeah, and that's a question, uh, you know, that I think a lot of, uh, particularly financial services, but a lot of industries are asking themselves. Um, I, I think we're a bit of a long way off having autonomous AI, the, the, the kind of making non-deterministic decisions on behalf of an organization. Uh, I think that said, I, I'm also seeing organizations using technologies like blockchain, for example, uh, to couple that with audit and machine learning and AI to show the kinds of decisions that were made and the data that backs that up. I think one way in which Blue Prism is really well positioned to support that is that we log everything, we audit everything, you know, it all goes into a central repository. So you do have that audit trail and, and that log of, of what's happening. And so when you start getting to the point where AI is, is, is not just making inferences, but taking action on those inferences and deciding what to do based on it. Yes, you know, you can have an audit trail that shows what was done and why it was done and, and who took that action. But, you know, for me, I think we're a long way off at the moment, uh, uh, that kind of capability where those, uh, those kinds of uh, 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 intelligent transactions are taking place in a business critical you know, production context. So you wouldn't say your RPA technology is a, a dynamically learning uh, uh, technology? Well, I think you can learn um, uh, to deliver insight um, rather than learning to take decisions uh, and, and, and to make choices. So, you know, one thing that we're very interested in doing is learning more about the kinds of processes that are going on in an organization to give people ideas about, you know, where they should go and look, where they should mine for opportunities, where they can harvest information. I think learning is very useful to show trends and patterns uh, and to demonstrate, again, to business people uh, what patterns are emerging, what that helps them to, to, to do in terms of taking their business on. You know, another customer that we worked with, um, they, were, they were in the telecoms industry. And when you lock your iPhone, you know, when you get locked out of your brand new iPhone, uh, <laughs> you your passcode, I'm looking at you, Ray. Um, you know, when you, when you lock yourself out of your phone, you have to ring up your, tel your telecom company and get them to unlock that SIM for you. And they do that for free and it takes a few hours. What these guys didn't notice because every person was doing their own unlocking was that the same email address was making that unlock request over and over and over again. But because they had a digital workforce that was looking at patterns and they could see insight and it was learning from what was going on, they were alerted to the fact that there were lots of unscrupulous companies popping up, charging $10 a pop to unlock your phone and then using the free service that the, uh, that the telco provider offered. So, you know, learning is really useful. <laughs> To help you understand Damn, that. that goes my business i was going to retire on yeah, that sorry. i think they've, they've closed that loophole now because they've got digital workers uh, in there but, uh, you know it, learning an ai doesn't mean that the, the robots have to make their own decisions it means that they can be more optimal and more productive and you can get more out of them we are here with the illustrious Dave Moss, CTO and co-founder of Blue Prism, talking about where RPN automation is going. Uh, one last question for you, really talking about um, this notion of jobs and jobs going away. I know Doug was talking a little deeper on that. Um, we actually seeing something different. We're seeing in, in a lot of, especially in the Western world, where birth rates are actually going in this direction, uh, that this is the one savior because of all the information data we're creating uh, to manage that. Um, what do you see the, the future of managing uh, the, this digital workforce, these digital bots, um, like who's going to drive that? Is it going to be bots managing bots? <laughs> well, you know, autonomous workers are one thing that we're, we're, you know, we're very interested in actually. And, and, and that's about 
you know, again, that insight perspective, you know, you, you can see what cues are building up, you know, the business priorities, you know, the SLAs, why do you need a manager telling your robots what to focus on next when <clears throat> they should be able to see that they should be able to perceive that, you know, I think look at a digital workforce as, as doing two things. One is creating capacity. Okay. If you had unlimited capacity, how much better could you be as a company? Uh, and secondly, if you had that unlimited capacity and they were starting to deliver skills, you know, insight, learning, collaboration, how much better could your workers be? You know, how much value could they add? And I think what it does, it doesn't just improve productivity. You know, when you improve productivity, you also elevate the workers, you know, the people who are the, the human capital of an organization. And Blue Prism is all about elevating human capital. It's about making them more valuable, feel more valuable, but also delivering more value and better business outcomes to our customers. Uh, and, and that's what productivity is about. It's about elevating that talent. We are here with Dave Moss, CTO and co-founder of Blue Prism with the last word, elevating humanity. Um, he doesn't have a Twitter handle, but you can follow at blue underscore prism. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dave. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thanks, it. Dave. Good. Wow. Okay. We're talking RPA, automation, AI on the one. Let's switch things to another one of our favorite topics. Who do we got here, Doug? We have Anup Nanra. Uh, director and head of blockchain and DLT initiatives at Cisco. Uh, he's a senior leader in Cisco's chief strategy office. He's focused on identifying disruptive technologies, one of our favorite topics, and accelerating their adoption through co-development, co-innovation, partnerships, acquisitions. Uh, he's an enterprise blockchain industry leader as chairman of the executive board, a member of the Trusted IoT Alliance, and Cisco's representative for the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. You can follow him on Twitter at at A-N-A-N-N-R-A. -N -N Anoop, welcome. And tell us about how Cisco is either envisioning using or already using blockchain technology. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having, uh, having me on the, on the show here. Um, so we've been looking at blockchain technology for coming up to four years now uh, and looking at it through the lens as you kind of uh, just described uh, of our innovation strategy, right, which is build by partner, invest, and co-develop. And so we looked at this as a technology as, you know, there's some interesting stuff happening about four years ago around, you know, uh, financial institutions making some big investments, big and big bets in the technology. Uh, and we said, let's, let's actually take a look at this. Is this actually going to be, be a thing that we should, uh, you know, have an investment thesis around? Uh, is there a product strategy that could come out of this? Um, and, you know, kind of how do we get involved? And so, uh, you know, we started our journey looking just like everybody else at cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, trying to figure out what is the role of switching and routing and, and kind of the, the, the toolkit that we had, uh, that we have at, at, at hand in, in its role and its ability to kind of drive performance or, you know, incre uh, decrease transaction finality times in, in cryptocurrencies. And, you know, we looked at this through the lens of, is there is there a, a business here? Is there is there an opportunity? Uh, and so, of course, we we've you know four years on, we're uh, you know we're we're, we're building a, a blockchain platform. We've had we've had you know numerous numerous pilots and POCs that we've kind of engaged in both internally and externally. Uh, and what we're seeing is that this is a space that uh, you know if, if we're defining products. Uh, this is a space where we will never be product feature complete, right? Uh, the amount of innovation that is happening here is phenomenal. Uh, it's happening at every layer within the software stack. The kind of accessibility that exists 
uh, for developers, uh, both big and small, no matter no matter the budget, uh, is there. So innovation is 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 accelerating. Uh, I would say that this is one of those few technology areas where we've actually democratized innovation to some degree. Um, you know, smart contract developers can can you know get get access to tools. They can get trained. We're seeing we're seeing children now take interest in cryptography. Which <laughs> is, I mean, that's that's mind-boggling to me. So, you know, I think the amount of opportunity that that exists in the blockchain space is phenomenal, uh, and kind of we've been we've been there uh, looking at this and and strategically making some 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 interesting moves in this space. Uh, we're founding members of the Hyperledger project at its inception, getting involved in it since its inception in December 2015. Uh, I helped, uh, was in, involved in kind of the creation of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. It's part of that small group of people that literally, like quite literally, uh, surrounded Vitalik in, in, in Shanghai at DevCon too, uh, to say, hey, you know what, Ethereum is, is, is this really phenomenal thing, and let's, let's see if there's, an, if, there, if there's an enterprise approach to it. Uh, and of course, um, uh, co-founder and uh, chairman of the Trusted IoT Alliance, which is looking at the intersection of blockchain and IoT, and what and trying to understand what is the question or what you know what does it even mean to blockchain enable something that talks to the internet right uh, and you know we're we're on a journey uh, and uh, we're we're definitely definitely super excited for that did you work with the legendary Aaron Dutta uh, as you were doing this yes we did we did he was he was part of the uh, original core team to help kind of define the strategy of of, of what might uh, our investment look like um, and he kind of made some very, very great introductions. I mean, his his uh, his sphere of influence is is legendary. Is yes, he is legendary, definitely there. So, so we, well, I mean, we do see blockchain as one of those exponential technologies for the next three to five years. And part of that is really, you know, looking at ways we we, we transform use cases. Right? For us, it's been uh, provenance of data. It's been smart mm -hmm. contracts. It's been identity. It's been decentralization of uh, data and storage uh, as that relates to privacy. But we often get this point, right? And it, and it's a very useful point. Steve Wilson, our team heads, our blockchain research. You know, he always comes back and says, but you can do that in a database, but you can do this in something else, but you can do this somewhere else, right? And, and it's a great point that, that we use as a counterbalance as to where we are in the technology. Um, so when you look at this today, like, where are we? Are the transaction volumes and processing going to get there? Are the vectors that impact performance on the chain actually being reduced? Like, what, what's happening in that space so that we know that, hey, is this, this is definitely going to be viable? Or are we going to be around on this blockchain side? Yeah, that's a great question, and and, it, and frankly, it's something that 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 we are asked all the time, right? Is 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 performance improving? Is, are the kind of the bottlenecks in consensus and, and transactions per second are they actually being addressed? And I would say that um, to a large degree, they are. I mean, they are kind of classical engineering problems that that folks are kind of dealing with and addressing. I think what's what's subtly different here is that. Um, we we're, we're, we seem to be shifting gears now, right? I mean, a year ago, even two years ago, uh, the conversation was more, uh, is the technology useful, right? And when you, when you kind of separate, you know, kind of what we're doing in the enterprise space versus what's happening in, in the cryptocurrency world, uh, the question was, is it useful? Is there kind of enough education and awareness of the technology and the value that it can bring? And so that conversation is kind of 
largely stopped now. And so now the question that becomes is the technology kind of works, right? You can do you can do data integrity, you can do infrastructure integrity, you can kind of do all these things, but are we getting the right kind of performance to get to global scale, right? And I think that's a that's a journey that frankly everyone is on in this space. Uh, we're seeing innovation happen in in the consensus layer uh, to kind of get to consensus faster. Uh, we're seeing work being done to kind of decouple consensus performance from the actual scale out and roll out of these blockchain networks. Uh, we're seeing innovations around deterministic smart contracts, right? So as your blockchain ecosystem grows, as it flexes its muscles, uh, how do we ensure that smart contracts are actually executing in a timely fashion so that you can actually guarantee in some cases you know, business outcomes that this business network is now executing on. So I think we're definitely on a journey. Um, the kinds of things that we're looking at is, you know, when you look at uh, a blockchain software stack, uh, how do we actually offload some of the functionality and actually embed them within the core of the internet itself? Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a journey that we're on. Um, I think it's going to be a, a fascinating journey because one of the, it's, it's funny, one, one startup uh, uh, commented to me that, you know, actually Cisco already operates every single blockchain network on the planet. And I said, yeah, that's, you're, I think you're probably right. And then he said to me, well, the problem is you're not making any money on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fix that. So a new, once the technology solidifies, what are the industries, what are the biggest opportunities uh, you think will be first when, when it, it really gets there? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, we're seeing obviously a lot of interest in financial services, uh, but I think financial services is, is on a, a generational journey. Uh, we've got decades worth of business process and business applications and business infrastructure in place that I think will be difficult to rip out. Uh, and so I think the, the technology should not be thought of as a rip and replace, but, you know, how do we augment? In terms of uh, potentially accelerated adoption, we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in supply chain, in, in logistics, uh, supply chain assurance. Um, we're seeing a lot of interest now in, in uh, the insurance space, kind of as you, get, as you kind of create this foundation of trust around assets, whether they be digital or physical, the question then becomes is, are you getting the right kind of data attributed to the identities of these assets that you could potentially create an insurance policy around? Right. And so we're starting to see these orthogonal relationships being created across different industries coming together and realizing that there's access to high quality data all of a sudden. And that high quality data, uh, if because you've got this natural history that can't be modified or manipulated, you know, could actually have uh, have some you know, interesting, uh, interesting you know, outcomes uh, in terms of how you might want to monetize that data. So that's that's kind of the the excitement that's happening now yeah. uh, is we're seeing data being being exploded. That actually brings a really interesting point, right? I mean, blockchain, I mean, on its own um, was very interesting as a technology, but I think the conversation around blockchain is helping people reimagine different types of business models across different industries um, and really thinking about the value chains and the value networks. Um, and and that's really what 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 we've been seeing from clients trying to figure out like where they can use it. Um, in multiple ways and multiple fashions. And so when you think about this, right, um, you know, one of the other areas that we keep talking about is really about um, securing data. What does that mean for you guys? What does that mean for Cisco? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and so kind of what I kind of alluded to before, I mean, blockchain is really good around, uh, for use cases around uh, data integrity, data immutability. There is still an onus on the ecosystem to ensure that enterprises that connect or are sending data to blockchain networks, that they're actually still adhering to best practices around infrastructure and application security. Right? You can compromise an application, you can compromise infrastructure, but if you're not securing it correctly, then, then how do you know and how do you guarantee that the data that you intended to send to the blockchain network is actually what was sent to the blockchain network? But what else if I and get hacked on the quantum side? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I think when, when that, that, that I think is a, it will be an interesting question, right? And, 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 you know, when you can credit card swipe a quantum computer and have access to it, you know, I think that then then it becomes a major. Concern. I mean, you saw that Rigetti's got 120 qubits coming out. Like they came out like a few weeks ago. I mean, what yeah, that's right. So that's right. And so and so we're seeing we're definitely starting to see some some really good research coming out of how do you create quantum resistant blockchain networks, uh, resistant blockchain uh, protocols. I still think that there's a lot of work to be done in kind of research and kind of understanding what does that actually mean, right? To have a quantum resistant or a quantum hack resistant blockchain network and business ecosystem at the end of the day. Now back, back to the here and now, last week, uh, my colleague Holger Mueller was talking about uh, blockchain in a, uh, in a HR context. Maybe that's you know, where there's not extreme performance demands uh, and mm -hmm. easy, you know, low hanging fruit for a first one, but we're also seeing a lot of talk about blockchain for IoT. What are, what are some of the IoT use cases you're expecting? So one of the uh, kind of low-hanging fruit use cases that we've seen is, is something around uh, firmware transparency, right? So you have these edge devices, you have these IoT gateways, there's a little bit of software running on them, there's some firmware that's running underneath uh, those applications. Uh, how, do you, how do you ensure, how do you validate or independently verify whether or not the software that is running on those devices is actually what was intended to be running. Are they actually configured and provisioned correctly? How do you know that the provisioning events haven't been compromised in, in, in one form or another? And so we're seeing a lot of applications around infrastructure integrity, uh, not only at the edge, but also in the core. And I think this is where, you know, we're starting to see opportunities around compliance, right? So leveraging blockchain to ensure and independently verify and authenticate compliance to security postures, to uh, the integrity of the operational aspects of kind of the edge compute devices. Uh, it's something we actually prototyped with a number of open source tools a couple of years ago, uh, where we actually uh, uh, leveraged a, a secure blockchain client that we had built that was embedded within an IoT gateway that we have that posted digital fingerprints of operational data, of configuration data, and posted that to a blockchain network. And the model here is that we've got these IoT gateways that are stringed or purled across a highway, right? And so, you know, when the use case that we're kind of pushing for there is uh, highway infrastructure, roadside data integrity for, for, for data and operational data uh, at highways that traverse multiple countries. So you think of Europe as kind of the ideal proving ground for this. One stretch of highway traverses multiple countries. Each country is responsible for the maintenance and operation of their stretch of highway. But how do you ensure that they're actually uh, collecting real-time telemetry and sharing this across, you know, the entire continent? Um, and so, what is the benefit? What is what is the benefit of that? Well, if you're not doing strategic planning 
around distribution of, of goods and services on these highways, you want to have better visibility onto the conditions of these roads and traffic conditions. And so how do you share this information in real time? How do you share it across continents, um, across countries, across multiple jurisdictions? Uh, one potential option is to leverage blockchain. That's a great point. That's a great point that we keep seeing. Um, so let's talk about the intersections. The other piece you talked about earlier in the introduction was IoT, how it came back together, right? And, and you know, we, we see IoT as kind of like the sensing, the kind of the context layer that's actually bringing the machines to life. We see blockchain sitting there and securing that data. We see AI kind of the brains that's happening. And then we see 5G providing the piping on multiplexing to make these low latency services come together. Is that like a pipe dream or is that where we are today? I mean, is that all gonna happen? No, I think, uh, I, I think a simple way to put it is uh, what a fantastic time to be alive. Um, we've got this, this, uh, these multiple trifectas uh, actually starting to emerge. Uh, access, accessibility, um, uh, mobility, uh, artificial intelligence, security and data integrity. I mean, these are all kind of, it's, it's, it's a recipe for something that is absolutely wonderful, right? Um, I think that we still need to think long and hard around what are the real applications or what are the real use cases that can actually extract business value. Um, and I think we're on that journey for sure as an industry. Uh, I think for, for folks who are making investments in each of these areas, um, it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, we're, we're going to see some fantastic stuff come out. Um, at, 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 uh, you know, I, I think I gave the only uh, blockchain talk at, at uh, this year's uh, Mobile World Congress, which was all about 5G, as you, as, as you know. And I'm expecting- coming. 5G is coming. We all have different 5G logos. I can't figure it out. <laughs> exactly, right? But, but I think- Call number eight was the, probably more interesting. Let's just leave it at that, so. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm expecting to see more blockchain uh, conversations happen at, at, at MWC. And so, what I think is, uh, you know, blockchain and IoT as an intersection is is very interesting. Um, I'm seeing it more and more as a conversation around. We've now got the right kind of tools in place to actually accelerate IoT adoption, um, because one of the biggest challenges has always been IoT security. Uh, how do you ensure data integrity of, as I kind of just described, kind of the operational aspects of, of IoT? How do you ensure data integrity of the data that is being uh, aggregated, the insights that are being collected and then delivered uh, into, into downstream systems? How do you ensure the integrity of all of that? Um, and I think blockchain has a unique opportunity and it's kind of what we're seeing in our alliance um, as, as, as kind of being an enabler of the adoption, of accelerating the adoption of, of IoT technology. Now you throw on top of that, machine learning and AI. And, and I'm, I'm starting to think about use cases where if you've got the ability to guarantee high quality insights, does that not create a net new market? And those high quality insights are based on high quality data that is being collected and kind of being aggregated through a blockchain network. I think it's a, it's a, great, it's a, great, uh, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, and maybe this question gets back to some of the organizations you're involved in, but uh, interoperability. There's so many initiatives out there, so many technologies that people, how do you ensure interoperability? 
It's a great question. And, and one of the things that we're doing at the Trusted IoT Alliance is we've actually stood up the world's first globally deployed interoperability test net. Uh, and the main objective there is to kind of look at and really understand what is the question even around blockchain interoperability. Um, you know, are we doing interoperability at the asset level? Are we doing interoperability at the protocol level, at the smart contract level, at the application level? Um, and so we're standing up multiple blockchain networks, multiple blockchain protocols. As I said, they're globally deployed. So we have nodes that are literally have thousands of miles between them. So we want to make sure that we're creating a sandbox that is truly representative of a global business environment. Uh, and we're starting to ask the question, right? How do we actually ensure interoperability? Um, what, are the what are the characteristics that we need to be looking out for? Uh, are we close to a point in time where we have standards? Should we even be talking about standards at this point in time? It's probably too early. Um, but uh, we need to kind of do the experimentation. We need to kind of understand what are, what are the real challenges that we see around interoperability. Now, of course, there are obviously uh, some very interesting interoperability blockchain networks that are now standing up. But do they go far enough? Right. I think I think that's that's one of the questions that we need to be uh, addressing. So interoperability, I think, will be one of the key barriers uh, that we need to overcome uh, in order to sure, ensure blockchain adoption and kind of accelerate its adoption. Um, because one of the things that you know we're finding a, a lot of customers uh, are are afraid of, of vendor lock-in, right? Oh, yeah. and, and rightly Definitely. so. Rightly so. And so if you've kind of uh, and, and, and of course, we know that the innovation in, that, in this space is accelerating. And so, you know, the flexible architectures, those would be the ones that went out, the ones that kind of can adapt and evolve as business requirements and business ecosystems evolve, those would be the ones that, that went out. And how do you do that? Uh, and how do you kind of deliver that kind of uh, functionality in an environment that is highly dynamic? Right. So we're all we're all going digital. Every everything is becoming a digitized uh, business ecosystem, and so the expectation is that you know we can actually move at the pace at the space of you know the internet and maybe even faster uh, to keep up with some of these 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 digital trends. Well, we are here live with Anoop Nanra, Director, Head of Blockchain DLT Initiative here at Cisco. Um, Anoop, thank you so much for being on the show. We can follow him at A-N-A-N-N-R-A. And uh, by the way, Aaron Dutta just pinged back to say hello. So anyways, uh, amazing. Like, look at this real-time interaction that's going on here. So thank, thank you, you for being on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. All yeah. right. So we hit the hot topics, automation, AI, blockchain. We got to pull it all together. Doug, you are now on the spot. So we got Doug Henschens, Vice President and Principal Analyst, Constellation Research. You can follow him at D Henschen, C-H-E-N. So H-E-N-S-C-H-E-N on the Twitter handle. Doug, you've been in the space for quite some time. I mean, you've been looking at data decisions. You've been an executive editor in the space. You've called almost every single major innovation that's going on. Um, I really wanted to talk about what's going on. I mean, you, you're just coming back from Strata Data this week. Um, what was interesting? What was hot? Um, and who did you meet? Oh, I met a ton of people. I think I had uh, 18 uh, uh, briefings there. Uh, met a lot of customers. You know, uh, Strata Data uh, is, is kind of a New York institution. It's one of the largest tech shows in the city. It's, it's independent. So, you know, you got a lot of vendors there. Um, you know, uh, the first one I attended was Hadoop World back in 2009. I mean, that's where 
Amazon introduced Elastic MapReduce, which is probably one of the most used big data platforms today. Uh, last year, I went to that show and it seemed dead and, and big data with it. Uh, this year, I was more optimistic. I think it held its own. There were probably 4,000 people there, uh, but it really has transformed. I think that reflects the change in the market. It's no longer about platforms and data management. People have these platforms. The topic is turning to AI and ML. How do we bring this stuff into production? Um, really, it reflects, it reflects how the market has evolved. If there's an issue that's still with data management, it's really the governance. How do we handle lineage and access control? We have these platforms in place. How do we now do it in an orderly fashion? How do we meet uh, regulatory and legal requirements and also ethical requirements? And you know, I saw a number of uh, startups there. There was an interesting one called Okira that is a sort of a layer between the compute and the storage. It's about abstracting catalogs, a very hot topic. Everybody now has a catalog. I have access to our, our data and let our business users get access to this data um, from something with more like a shopping metaphor instead of having to go through I, IT. I know, what's up with catalogs? I feel like they're the catalog for everything. Are we over cataloged at the moment? Well, I think there's gonna be a consolidation in that market. I mean, I think it's, it's coming up from of every uh, vendor. It goes right hand in hand with data prep. It goes hand in hand with access control and it's going hand in hand with governance. So uh, that was a hot area. You know, one of the things I love about being an analyst is the same thing I loved about being a journalist. We get to talk to everybody. You know, one minute I'm meeting with one vendor, talking to maybe some of their customers and vetting what they're saying. Uh, next minute I'm with their arch rival, talking to their customers. Uh, so it's, it's a great opportunity to hear comments, uh, to hear interesting things said. I was meeting with Sri Ambadi, the CEO of H2O. Ooh, and he wow. said, yeah, he said that, companies. yeah, yeah, he's been, he's been, been there. Uh, and he said the big data died, the big data hype died because it didn't deliver enough apps. So that's really the conversation today. How are we going to make this AI, make this but, ML? But wait, but wait, but are, can we just basically take big data, did a find and replace with AI? <laughs> No, I think it's okay. We have these platforms in place, you know, despite the, the trough of disillusionment, it's not like they're getting unplugged. We've still evolved to new platforms, you know, NoSQL databases, you know, scalable distributed platforms. They're there and they're being used. It's the, the story now is about make use of that data, big data, zillions of zettabytes. Who cares? What is it doing for our business? Got it. Who else did you meet? Any other interesting announcements down there at Strata? Well, uh, there were some good sound bites. Uh, Kazi Kazakov, she's a chief decision scientist at Google Cloud. I love that title. I think chief decision scientist is better than data scientist because again, it's about hey, what data you do to with decisions. It. Yeah. So she was uh, talking about you know what we're doing with AI and ML is is really kind of uh, coming up with magic lanterns. Uh, and the danger isn't really in the genies we're creating, it's in the, the questions, the wishes that the humans are asking of those genies. Ooh, look at that. That was a nice Well, remember, hey, you, I don't, you don't judge people by their answers, you judge people by the questions they ask, right? <laughs> That's what they always say. So I'm um, kind of on that line. Okay, well, hey, look, you recently wrote this report on um, AI imperative, advance from experimentation to deployment at scale. So tell us a little about that. What, what was that all about and uh, what inspired you to write that research? Yeah, well, very much the topic uh, at this week's event. 
the topic of uh, a lot of the research I've been doing, uh, the uh, case study I did with Danska Bank earlier this year, how they wanted to use, like many companies, they want to use machine learning, they want to use deep learning to get to better decisions, uh, but it's a journey. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of vendors. You go to a show and you see the same sort of messaging about taking ML and AI into production. You know, all the usual suspects are there, the SaaS and IBM, you know, Amazon, Cloudera, Microsoft, Oracle, Domino, H2O, Data Robot, all these vendors, uh, you hear a lot of similar things about collaboration, about a, a unified platform, about a way to get people together. This report really uh, talked about, yeah, there's a need for technology to unite, but really it's much more about the people and the processes. Um, you know, the challenges are you know, getting the business people in the loop. So very much uh, you talk to the leaders and they're taking more of a DevOps style approach where you have your frequent check-ins and uh, you know you, you get them in the loop, uh, you're constantly checking your results and going through to an iterative approach. The data scientists, uh, too often in the past, they were uh, loaners on laptops. You gotta get them to standardize on- That visual's amazing, dude. Loaners on laptops, I <laughs> yeah, love it. Loaners on laptops, uh, hopefully not losers. They're gonna be losers on laptops. <laughs> Embrace standardized tools, uh, embrace shared repositories so that these things can be shared, so that they're repeatable. These are the differences between experiments, cool experiments, and success. Uh, IT and data management has to be collaborating and coordinating with the data scientists to make sure that the data is getting in the pipelines and everything, and with the developers to make sure that uh, what they're bringing into production matches what the data scientists are expecting. Those developers have to be uh, collaborating better uh, with the data scientists. They're often rewriting uh, the, the models from an R or for, from a Python into a Java or more of a production uh, language. They have to constantly collaborate again with the business to make sure their apps are delivering on, on what's expected. So it's very much a team sport. Um, and you know that's more of a cultural and process change than a technology. Lots of technology out there, but it, it, it won't be a silver bullet. It won't transform your ability to do this. You really have to master the art of, of, of team play. You heard it here first from loners, uh, <laughs> loners on laptops to uh, team sport. Um, all right, let's get to trends. That's at the heart. I mean, this fall, we've been launching trends, uh, getting them up to speed just as they get ready for 2019. Uh, talk about some of the trends that you're seeing on, in your recent report, five trends impacting data-driven decision-making. Yeah, well, topic A1 was AI. We've talked about that. Uh, the next one really is embedded analytics. It's something that independent software vendors have been doing a long time. The SaaS vendors, et cetera, have been embedding analytics into their applications hopefully in a concise way at decision points. So you don't have to go off to a report or off to a dashboard, sit there and analyze, try and figure out what's going on. No, you have a more concise analytic right there at a decision point so you can get on with your business and not leave that interface. So, um, you know, this is now moving as uh, mainstream companies are becoming software companies, this embedded opportunity is moving to them and they're learning how to do this within their end user and even customer facing applications. The next trend I talked about was real-time demands and it's tied to the embedded demand because we are all experiencing this interest, this demand for more real-time low latency insight and uh, more low latency reaction and action. So that's tied to it because there's less time 
for us to go off to a report or go off to a dashboard. Got we it. need that concise insight or better still, and this is something uh, my colleague Hogler talks about, better still automate a decision. So I wrote a case study about Kaplan test prep earlier this year. It's moving to dynamic learning. You know about you know, the, the paper uh, tests, test uh, um, sample tests that you can bone up on your SAT and ACT. Well, they do all sorts of online testing and they're learning to build analytics into that and sense and do an analytics on which questions are these students taking a lot of time on, which ones are they breezing through, which ones are they like erasing their answer, going back and changing it, because that's analytics on what they need to learn and what they know. So then the system is dynamically without any human in the loop figuring this out is dynamically automatically feeding them co more content on what they need to learn and skipping over the stuff that they've already mastered so that's great you need you need this more of a, a of a event driven architecture event driven tools to do this sort of thing uh, the the fourth trend i talked about was hybrid and multi-cloud we've heard this from the data platform vendors if they're independents uh, they very much are telling the story of we're making our platform available so you can run it on premises, you can run it in public clouds, you can run it on multiple public clouds, and you don't have to, with container technology, cloud-based approaches, you don't have to redevelop it and tweak it and tune it for each and every place you want to deliver it. No, you can start to monitor, deploy wherever you need it, whenever you need it, deploy it on multiple clouds. So that started with data platforms. Now I'm hearing, you know, data prep vendors and I'm hearing uh, catalog vendors talk about the same story. And the last trend I talked about was planning, getting to be per pervasive, these performance management uh, uh, platforms that uh, heretofore it was a CFO topic, but it's moving out into sales, into marketing, into various line of business areas. Uh, you've had some companies this year, uh, I think this demand for broader operational planning has triggered a lot of action in the market this year, Workday acquiring uh, adaptive insights. And uh, clearly they're saying we couldn't develop this capability fast enough internally. We want to acquire adaptive insights so we can you know, capture th their clients and kind of help move this up into the enterprise world where we dominate. And then this year, uh, uh, Say uh, this week, actually, Sage and Intact announced they're introducing, as we've seen with other ERP vendors, Sage and Intact, very SMB-oriented product. They're introducing planning down at that level. Maybe they're looking to uh, encroach on these areas where uh, Adaptive Insights was very strong among SMBs as those guys move up into the enterprise. Wow. So we're definitely seeing that shift that's going on here. I know you attend a lot of different shows that are popping up. Um, what are other trends? Uh, what are the shows that you're headed to? Uh, what's next on the agenda? Uh, next week, I'm off to Emphasis's event, uh, Confluence in Monarch Beach, Southern California. Welcome return to my old uh, Information Week 500 haunting grounds. Oh, that was the best, wasn't it? Uh, right? yeah, yeah. The, the golf tournament before, the whole IW500. That, that was season, the ultimate was resort. Monarch Beach, right? We had it one year there. It was, uh, we, we did it there. We were probably not big enough for the venue, but uh, yeah. yeah, it was the St. Regis back then, if I remember, so. Yeah, yeah. So we, I, I go to Emphasis and I come back in the red eye and do Capgemini's uh, AR event in New York. Oh, nice. uh, then the following week is a big one for everybody. I'll be at Microsoft Ignite, followed by uh, Salesforce Dreamforce. Could those guys put their events right on top of each other or what? 
oh my God, can you talk about like <laughs> conflicting events big time? And it's also in forum that's going on. Right. So I mean, you'll be there. This and, is uh, uh, and then October, you know, this is the this is the season. Uh, I'm going to Looker's uh, joint event. Uh, always interesting to get with up and coming vendors. Uh, I'm going to uh, Oracle Open World brief stop before our own CC event. I've uh, Teradata, a number of other vendors have, have, have big events coming in October. So uh, happen in time. No, it's awesome. We're seeing definitely a lot of big changes there. Um, so as we think about trends, right, as we're walking into 2019, people are starting to plan for 2019. Um, what do you think people should start doing uh, to get set, right? Because this, this shift to data decisions, where we're headed in AI is only going to accelerate. What are some quick things people should do? I think they've got to prioritize and think about their business priorities. You know, don't just be a me too, follow the trend, AI, ML. Uh, when I look at some of the case studies I've done, Danska Bank, you know, they didn't go after some, you know, fancy new problem. They went after a problem they've been dealing with a long time and needed really a transformational uh, upgrade in their approach because, uh, you know, the old, old approach wasn't working, you know, risk and uh, uh, the, dis, you know, the, the security concerns are overwhelming. And, uh, you know, as, as David, our first guest talked about, so many companies have these problems that have just been festering. They've got piles of to-dos, uh, things that um, really are really important for their business that they haven't been able to solve. This is what you prioritize. Think of the business priorities, then uh, kick the tires and start experimenting with those new technologies. But you have to have an eye on, and certainly our research is designed to help guide folks to getting to an approach that will get beyond the experiments and get into production at scale. Well, you know, I think a lot of people forget that the data prep is an important piece. Um, that's always one of those areas where people just never uh, get it right. So, right. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks for being my co-host today, yeah. um, especially as we've been talking about what's going on. We're with Doug Henchen, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. You can follow him at D-H-E-N-S. C-H-E-N, I always forget that S, uh, you don't pronounce it that way. Um, and yeah, we're getting ready for episode 123. Vala Ashra will be back. Uh, we've got some great guests, Don Pontrafat, author, speaker, thinker and chief and visioner at TELUS. We're gonna be talking about David Bray, executive director at People Center Internet Coalition, along with Marcy Harris, also on the board. She's the CEO of PopVox. And of course, Carrie Egan, investor at Emergence Capital. And so we bring in all those folks here today. Uh, next week, same time, same bat channel. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV show. Uh, thanks a lot, everyone. Hey, thanks, Lisa, for your comments to thank us on the show. And of course, other guests that are following here. So you can follow us at Disrupt TV Show, 11 a.m. PT, 2 p.m. Uh, ET, uh, every Friday. So thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you, Ray Wong. <laughs> Take care, Doug. See you soon. Mm -hmm.